We're in Philippians 4. I don't know about you. Jared kind of hit it last week. He said, whenever you said we were at the end of Philippians, I kind of just went, whoa. Like Philippians, I feel like it's been a while, and then all of a sudden it's almost done. And so we're right here in Philippians chapter 4. Uh, we got about, we've got this week, and then we've got two more weeks. And then just so you know, we're going to be in Malachi. Um, after this, we're going to go to Malachi. It's about, uh, it's a short um, book of prophecy, but Malachi was the last prophet through whom God spoke before he went silent. And that's always amazed me. Where was humanity? Where were God's people that at a certain point he finally just says, I will be silent until the Redeemer comes. So I want us to look at Malachi and then from Malachi, then we're going to be in April and that's Easter month. Um, And so we're going to be walking with Christ to the cross through his betrayal, his passion, his crucifixion, his resurrection. Um, We're going to celebrate on Easter um, with a a celebratory breakfast together. And then we're going to worship together and take the Lord's Supper. And then we're going to go out. So, I mean, we're, we're excited to celebrate in that way. So that's just where we're going over the next couple of months. As you're wondering, where are we going from Philippians? We're going to look at Malachi. Then we're going to walk with Christ to the cross and then we will most likely be in First Timothy um, at that point. But God may kind of change that direction as we continue in prayer with him. With all that said, here we are, Philippians. We're, we're about to finish it. And it's almost like, have you ever gotten to the end of a conversation? You've, you've had limited time with somebody. And then you're about to finish that conversation. Then all of a sudden, you have so many other things that you've got to get in the, the next five minutes. I mean, Andy and I, as we met as elders this morning, it went like that. I mean, we started and we're like, man, we got tons of time. We had our agenda laid out before us and we had all these things we were going to talk about. And I think we checked about three things off the list um, officially, Um, but we discussed a whole lot. But finally, at the end of it, Andy said, "Okay, I'm going to pull the business mode here and say, we need to start talking through all these other things, too, because we were really just talking about... um, just, just so many good things that, that were challenging to us and, and what the Lord is doing. And then he said, okay, but, but we got more that we need to talk about. Like it's all right here on the agenda. That's kind of how this passage of Philippians feels like to me. It feels like Paul's getting to the end and he's like, oh goodness, I got to tell them so many other things. And you're going to notice that there's all of a sudden it's like a shotgun scatter here at the end. He shoots, and then there are, there's the scatter going out. He's going to cover this and this and this and this and this. And it's going to all seem kind of scattered, and yet at the same time, it's all really unified. Here's what you need as we, as we look at this. Paul, he really is. He's going to give like a battery, like a, a, a kind of this wide, um, this wide array of things that you and I must do. Like he's just going to say, you need to do this. You need to do this. You need to do this. And then he doesn't waste any time on it. It's like, here's the imperative. You do it. And then I'm going to move on to the next thing. But keep this in mind. He cares about the joy of the Philippians. He cares about the joy of the Philippians. And you're going to hear that here. And he cares about their unity. Like I was struck as we were taking the Lord's Supper. I look up. And, and I see this verse right here on this wall again. And, and it's not by design for us as we gather here. It's by design for the school that as students are eating together, that, that they're seeking to dwell in unity because it honors the Lord. And, but I'm seeing that and I'm like, man, how many ununified, how many broken churches and fellowships do we know? And the Philippians had some division within them evidently because Paul keeps calling them back to unity. And then he cares about the perseverance of the Philippians. So there's those three things, joy, unity, and perseverance. That's what you're going to see here. But here's the one solution to all of these, because you and I are going to look at each one of these. And what is the solution to absolutely every one of them? Christ. That is the solution that our world needs. We don't need pop psychology. We don't need methodology. We don't need the next book that tells us how we can navigate this this struggling relationship. We need Christ. Christ at the center of everything that we do. Because when Christ is there and we are humble, then he restores and redeems. In Philippians 4, 2 through 9, Paul writes, here at the end of it all. Notice it's just going to go bam, 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 bam. 
In his concluding thoughts, Paul writes, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyx to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Then verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So that's our passage. Let's pray one more time because there, there are, there's about five strands all united by Christ, but five different strands that we're going to be looking at here. So let's pray. Lord, I pray for your wisdom and your conviction. And Lord, also just your peaceful pause. There are so many other things going on in our lives. And Lord, they consume us. And they distract us. They break unity. They take our joy. Or they keep us from walking after you. They, they captivate our thoughts. Lord, I pray that you give me the clarity to speak, not with perfect speech. Lord, I'm okay if I stumble and stammer as long as your word is known. But Lord, I pray that you do comfort our hearts even as you convict us today. Because there is a Christianity of this world that does not glorify you, and there is a Christianity in this world that does glorify you. Lord, we don't want to be shallow Christians. Lord, we're tired of that, and it dishonors you. Lord, we want to genuinely honor that which you've given us. And we can only do it by your strength. So, Lord, as you convict us today... I pray you comfort us. And as you comfort us, I pray that you give us conviction to follow after our holy God. Lord, we love you. Amen. Okay, so there are, there's, there's kind of like strands that go through here. Um, it really is. It's like he's, he's got this thought, he's going to give it to you, and then he's going to go to this thought, and then this thought, and then this thought, and this thought. And you might think, well, but the paragraph is all together. Like in my Bible, there's the paragraph, it's all together. In some Bibles, it's not. Did you know in some Bibles, they break it down, every single verse gets its own line? The scholars have just done their absolute best to translate it and keep the flow in the syntax as best they can, and it looks like this paragraph to us. But just break down, not by paragraph structure, but just by thoughts. And so here's what we see in 2 and 3. We need to have, all of the points are going to start with right. We've got to have the right fellowship. That's the first thing that we see here. He has, I mean, look, look at this. In Philippians verse 1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I mean, all the, he's saying stand firm in the Lord. Like, stand firm. That's what we ended with last week. And all of a sudden, he's talking about these two women over here in this church who don't get along. We don't know what they disagreed about. I don't think it matters. I think what matters is this, that these two women who are believers, look, he says they labored alongside me. We have worked side by side. We've done gospel work together. And these two women, they don't get along. And he's telling them, fix it. Like tell them that sent to Judea, you need to get along. He says, work with them and bring them together. The reputation of their division in the church has reached Paul in prison. And we might say, why in the world does this matter? But obviously it mattered enough to Paul that while he's in prison and writing to Philippians about their joy and unity and perseverance, he calls out these two women. But it's because he loves them. He says, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. 
These are believers, and they're divided. We don't know what they're divided about. But just as kind of a teaching point for us to consider, um, consider what he wrote in Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, any affection and sympathy, then complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So here at the end, before he's finishing and and writing off here at the end of, of Philippians, what comes to mind is even though he said, be of the same mind, same love, being full of accord and of one mind, he's sitting there thinking about these two women who are not of the same love, same accord, same mind. It is one thing for us to split over bad doctrine, and we should. If I begin to preach bad doctrine or bad theology, then you should abandon this place and shut the doors. That's... That's okay. That's good. It is one thing to divide over doctrine and theology whenever it is corrupt and wrong. It's another thing for us to divide over opinions and preferences in the church. And what happens, sadly, and what my family has walked through and walked, through, walked with pastors through is that opinion and preference gets elevated to the level of doctrine, and then people begin to flee the church, and they divide, and what's left, y'all, is a tarnished reputation of Christ in the community. It's not okay. It's really not okay. I don't think that these women are dividing over a doctrinal issue or Paul, knowing Paul, Paul would have called them out. He'd have been like, you need to tell Eudea. And then he would have clarified, but he said, put them back together. Now this, Psalm 133, this is what God cares about. That what he has redeemed and reconciled by his blood you and I have no place to break apart again. And so there is that concern. Here's a, here's a problem with preferences and opinions, even from my, my role as an elder in the church. I have preferences and I have opinions because I just feel that heavy conviction on my heart. Right? But then I remember Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. So this whole mantra in our world of just follow your heart, what's your heart say? Your heart tells you something that's deceptively wicked and it will lead you astray. So we just need to know that about ourselves. But any time that you and I, this is for me too, any time that I am sitting in a church and I have this conviction and that conviction is going to bring division or divisiveness within a church and it's not rooted in doctrine, then I am acting in disobedience and sin. I don't like to say that. I don't like to think it. But if it's not rooted in doctrine and it leads to division over my preferences and opinions, then really it's just petty. It's just my preference. But any time Andy or I or another elder begins to, to preach a false doctrine, flee this place. We're not a church anymore for promoting false doctrine. One, one commentator said this. This is where it all starts turning back to Christ, but I want to kind of add these comments real quick. One commentator says, Petty bickering looks trivial, if not foolish. Look at this. When seen from the perspective of the Lord's coming in judgment. We know that the Lord is coming again. I mean, the snow, that was amazing. We knew it was coming, but then whenever it starts to fall, I mean, you saw Fort Smith break down. I mean, you saw, but everybody was waiting on it. Everybody's talking about it. We need to be talking about it so much more that the Lord is coming. That's why I keep gathering. Like, he's coming. It's not a false hope. Like, this is something that's truly going to happen. And when he comes back, what will he find us doing? But the Lord is coming back. And therefore, to argue, I'm not kidding, to argue over the color of the carpet or where the coat hooks go on the wall and to let that be what divides us. There's something, I don't know if y'all are aware of it, but there's something called the worship wars that was going on and has been going on probably, they say, for, for decades. But I think it probably was going on in the early church too. Like, what songs do we sing? Are we going to sing this one? Is it going to appeal to this one or that? I mean, these are things that people are honestly arguing about. And to be quite honest, sometimes there's doctrine in it, but in other times, it's just preference. 
But as long as the Lord is honored in our unity, he is honored above all else. Another commentator put it this way, and this is what I want us to be so mindful of. And you might say, Ricky, I'm good on this one. Like, quit hitting this one over and over again. But you may very well be having coffee with someone, someone one day, and they need this encouragement too. You need to kind of stop them as they're talking about leaving a church or talking about confronting someone in the church and just say, okay, is this, is this doctrinally sound or is this preference? This commentator says, it is a sin to oppose those in the church who have a disagreement with us over a personal matter. Because to oppose a brother or sister for such a reason is a work of the sinful nature, a work of impurity. Such opposition wounds. This is what really got me. It wounds Christ's body. It can destroy the church. Whenever we feel impelled to oppose some brother or sister in the church, let us make very certain that we are opposing that person for Christ's sake and not our own sake. Otherwise, we shall be opposing Christ himself. That one stopped me. Because I've walked alongside many brothers and sisters and many pastors who for the sake of a personal matter have been wounded and afflicted. Y'all, we don't gather as a kind of like this country club feeling idea where we're all just going to come and just be united with one another. And this is the club and social group that we decide to unite with. This is the body of Christ as expressed in Cross Life Fort Smith. Some of you are the finger. Some of you are the feet. Some of you are the belly button. All right. But this is the body of Christ. And therefore, if I act out, if I lash out my right hand against my left hand, because the left hand does not see things as the right hand does, or the leg does not move as my heart does, if any part of my physical body reacts against the other part of the body, then it's harming my body. So it is in the church. We do not all think the same way. We weren't meant to. We were meant to treasure the same one thing. But we have different perspectives We have different opinions. We have different preferences. We are the body. And so for Andy and I to go against one another is doing harm to the body of Christ and to Christ himself. That's heavy for me. It's pretty humbling for me. But the danger of these two women, the reason that it concerns Paul, is not because they're not getting along. I think it's rooted in he deeply loves them. And it does damage to the rest of the body of Christ because ultimately, Judea is talking to somebody. Sintik is talking to somebody. And they're drawing their camps because that's just how it goes. It's human nature. So I just want you to be very, very careful cross life. That as God is moving in a church, so will Satan. Like it would be ignorant for us to think that because we gather here, Satan is not in this place. But where God is sowing the good seed, we saw this in the parable last week, so Satan is sowing the weeds to choke out the work of God. And in the end, we know this, Christ will return. He will set all accounts straight. But until then, we need to humbly walk alongside one another. Why? Because Christ's reputation in this community is at stake. Then he goes on right after that, and he says, you need to have the right attitude. And here it is. I did not, by the way, like to write this one. There are many parts of this next section that I do not want to write because I know that Trent is going to send them to me in a text or remind me of them whenever I'm sitting there going, I'm having one of my Eeyore days. Thanks for noticing. (laughs) But here we go. Verse four, you and I need to have the right attitude. And it's this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know what? That's a command It's an imperative. It's not a suggestion. Have joy. Rejoice in the Lord. You're supposed to do it. Like it's the only right and proper response. I know that I struggle with this. I really know I struggle with this. And those who walk alongside me the closest and know me the best are going to be sitting there going, I really hope he hears that. But this was a section of the entire sermon where the Lord was reminding me of these truths as a believer. And so here's what I want to share with you. We are commanded scripturally to have joy because y'all get this. It's all that we can have. It's all we can have whenever we rightfully think through everything. I mean, recite the gospel 
back to yourself and make it a daily thing, but just listen to this. You and I were wickedly depraved. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind, not seeking God, not loving God, not desiring God. There might have been something within us that said there's got to be something much more than this, but we were seeking ourselves. We were lost and destined for hell. Like that's who we were. And then Christ, who is the Holy One of heaven, eternally existing, perfect and eating absolutely nothing. He takes on flesh in heaven and he comes to earth and he comes to the sinful mankind who will receive him in word, but will hate him in their hearts and actions. And he gets crucified to the cross and he could have stopped every bit of it. When the soldiers came for him, he said, don't you know, I could call down legions of angels and stop this. But I am that Jesus and I will come with you. At any point while they're punching him and spitting on him and ripping out his beard and mocking him and say, save yourself. All he had to do was say, God, I'm done. And God would have sent the angels and stopped it all. Whenever he's carrying his cross up the hill and whenever he's being nailed to the cross, he could have relented at any moment because he didn't need anything else. But you and I, We're desperately lost and without hope. We were destined for a hell like the rest of mankind, children of wrath, following our own passions. We had no clue what we even needed. And Jesus Christ saw that we weren't worthy. And he said, I I will go for them and I will bring them home. What greater joy should we have but that we have peace with God? When you and I pray, he hears us. Whenever we cry out in the middle of the night, Lord, I don't know what to do with this. He leans near and says, I know, and I am your God, and I will do all things right. You and I have no reason to despair. Dark days will come, but we don't give up, and we know why. It's because our God is with us. But, I mean, just think of that. That's why Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know why? Because the only natural conclusion of genuine, authentic Christian faith is that we have joy. None of this is hopeless. You and I, before we were saved, were the closest to hell that we would ever be. Even now, this is the closest to hell that we could ever be again because he keeps sanctifies, keeps bringing us home closer and closer. Even if I die of a horrible disease or illness, I will one day experience the greatest miracle and be in the presence of my Lord. The moments may be tough, but I will have joy because he has made all things right. He has redeemed you, Christian, and removed all wrath from you so that there is peace between the holy God who you could not know, and he now calls you son and daughter and welcomes you into his presence. Rejoice in the Lord Always. Again, I will say rejoice. You know why? Because we don't rejoice in our circumstances. We rejoice in the Lord. That's exactly what he said. Rejoice in the Lord. You should read the Psalms. If you haven't read the Psalms, David knows how to mourn. David knows how to lament. He knows how to weep before his Lord. But read the Psalms for this one reason. While he lists out all of his enemies are surrounding him, while he mentions that his bones are groaning and that he has wept all night long, you know what it always turns back to? Rejoicing in the Lord. Lord, this is, I mean, I've wept all night long and my bones groan within me and yet you are high and holy and worthy to be praised. You and I should have joy. I struggle with it. You know why? Because I lose that perspective. Everything in that moment seems so large and overwhelming to me in my flesh that I forget the great confidence that I have in my Christ because he has redeemed me. So rejoice, not in yourselves, not in your circumstances, not in your feelings. Rejoice in the Lord. Happiness is temporary. I can be happy and smiling this very moment and then in 30 minutes from now be heartbroken. But happiness is a temporary emotion. Joy is a deep-seated eternal happiness. It doesn't shift So my note to myself, Trent, is forget the circumstances and remember your God. That's what we don't do well enough. 
We remember the circumstances and forget our God. You know what Ricky needs? Remember your God and forget the circumstances. I do think that one of the reasons that most Christians really do despair and lose their joy is because they haven't read enough scripture. I don't mean that as like a, hey, you should be reading scripture, huh? Holy, holy moment right here. No, I mean it. You should read scripture more. Because whenever we read scripture, we see the people of God put such, through such extreme, unordinary circumstances. Everything seems so overwhelming and like it will destroy them absolutely. And then we see the rescue of God always on their behalf. We see God sovereignly working all things through his people for his glory. So, so scripture reminds me over and over and over again that God not only knows the circumstances, that those circumstances are all part of his sovereign work and that he has not forgotten us. So we need to be pouring into scripture because it does help me to forget those circumstances which seem so incredibly overwhelming and just remember my God. If you ever feel... Like, I should send Ricky a text because you can send it any time during the week and it will be applicable, I promise you. My wife knows this. Send me that text that says, forget the circumstances, remember your God. It's what I need. It's what we all need. It restores the joy that we all need. So you need to have joy as I need to have joy. Recite the gospel and remember it. Delight in it. And remember your God. And then he goes on like he's not giving them any chance. Like it's a left, right punch and then he's going to sucker punch them again. Then he says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. I'm a pretty reasonable fella. Like I'll tell you, here's a logistical approach of how we're going to get this done. Here's the strategy. Here are the next steps. Here's how we accomplish A, B, C, and D. It's how we're going to move through all of this. Uh, reasonableness doesn't mean logical. A better word for reasonableness actually is gentleness. It's actually the better interpretation. But it doesn't mean gentleness alone. So I know the NIV uses gentleness and so do other translations. But actually the term itself is actually a pretty broad term that includes not only gentleness, but patience, kindness, and goodness. Basically, the fruit of the Spirit. If you really look at that term, he's saying, let the fruit of the Spirit be known to all. Or let your gentleness be known to everyone. But that's why, here's why you can be gentle. Here's why you can be kind. Because the Lord's at hand. His reminder is not ever in our sufficiency, but that Christ is coming again. He keeps saying, because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is coming again. Even in, Thess uh, the, in Thessalonians, it talks about um, the Antichrist and the coming of ages and how every... And he does not like tell people that that's what we should be obsessed over. He talks about the Lord coming again. And he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words that the Lord is coming again. Everybody in our world, it seems right now, is looking at the end of the ages and they're looking for all the signs. I'm just looking for Christ. Like that's what Thessalonians says to do. The Lord is at hand. Be encouraged. And you should be encouraged in this way, according to Philippians, because the Lord is at, the Lord is at hand, you should be patient, kind and gentle. And everyone should know it. Darn it. Right. We are to be gentle. And we might say, oh, but he says the Lord's at hand. But that was a long time ago, and Christ didn't come back then. I mean, how, when is he coming back? You know what? If he didn't come back then and we're here today, well, then we're even closer. And tomorrow morning, we're even closer. But it is imminent. Christ will return. But remember, 2 Peter does tell us that a day for us is a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years to the Lord is a day to us. In other words, he does not operate according to our time frame. He orchestrates everything so that at the right time Christ came, Romans tells us, and at the right time Christ will return. But whenever he comes back, what kind of people will he find? Scripture says, let your reasonableness, your gentleness, your patience, your kindness be known to everyone. The term itself refers to someone who's patient and selfless to someone who has just a gentle nature and does not seek their own way. And you know who Paul said this should be evident to? Everybody across life. 
Everybody who's a Christian, not everyone. Whenever I'm walking through Walmart, whenever I'm posting on Facebook, whenever I'm at the school, whenever I'm preaching at Cross Life, whenever I'm meeting you at McDonald's at 6 o'clock in the morning, man, so we can have breakfast and fellowship, just a good gentle, gentle reminder there. But whenever we're doing that, I am to be known for my gentleness. There's a, a form of, of Christianity that's out there now. It's a very militant Christianity, and I get fight for convictions. I'm not saying we should be pacifist at all. I'm saying we should be driven to, to fight for our convictions, but there's another type of Christianity that's just very militant and aggressive, and people delight in being rough and tough, and they're going to be that tough and that rough Christian. They're going to be that rebel spirit that's out there, and we're called to be gentle. So that everybody, everybody knows. But it may be this, that because our gentleness is so evident that whenever we do fight, like for a conviction, whenever we stand for a conviction, they know that we have been level and gentle, and therefore this is a true conviction. But you and I, our gentleness, our reasonableness for the Philippians and for us today, it should be evident to everyone, to your co-workers, to your family members, and to strangers. They should be able to look at us and say there's a different character in that person. And we can say only because of Christ. Because if you want to know me as I truly am, I'm pretty stubborn and I'm pretty headstrong. And that's even with Christ in me. So without Christ in me, it was even worse. But we are to let our gentleness be known. That Christ, who needed nothing, would take on the form of a servant and wash the feet of his disciples. And that included the disciples who would desert him. This included the disciple who would deny him and the disciple who would betray him. And yet in gentleness, he served them all. That's what we're called to do. So Paul is saying, let your gentleness be evident to, to everybody. Then he goes on. He doesn't stop. He says, the Lord's at hand. And he tells, tells us this. This is all still part of a, uh, I'm sorry, I was in, this is the right perspective on everything. He says, do not be anxious. I'm going to move a little bit quicker here just for the, just being mindful um, of the text that we have left. It says, do not be anxious. So you need to be gentle. The Lord is at hand. And he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul has said, have joy, be gentle. And then he just told them, do not be anxious. Piece of cake, Paul. Like he's got like five or six imperatives here of things that you and I should be doing as Christians. And he just said, don't be anxious. The original word, like the root word for anxious, y'all get this, literally means to be pulled apart. That's what anxiety does within us. It pulls us apart. And as it's pulling us apart and constraining us and like stretching us in that way, like this is all internal, as it's pulling us apart, it has a counter effect on our joy. So as it pulls us apart from within, it's strangling our joy out as well. And he says, don't be anxious. Don't be pulled apart within. And here's his solution. In everything, by prayer and supplication, make your request made known to God. Don't be anxious, pray. It's so simple. What is our problem? Like, that's, whenever I'm anxious, I found that whenever I pray, I'm no longer anxious or stressed or disheartened. But you know what I don't do? I don't pray first. I get caught up in this anxious cycle that feeds upon itself. One commentator so blatantly said it this way. Anxieties are weapons of Satan. Man, so true. Anxieties are weapons of Satan. And you know what we do? We give them way too much audience. Way too much audience. The remedy is prayer. Paul, Paul says, oh, you're anxious. Great solution here. Stop. Stop being anxious. I mean, there's a Bob Newhart um, clip. And if I was technologically savvy, then I would have it set up here so that you could watch it. But, but this person comes in and she has these problems. And every time she says, well, I find myself doing these things. He's like, stop it. And every time she says, but then I have this, you know, self-destructive tendency. Stop it. Well, why would you do that? That's, that's a horrible idea. Just stop it. Like his solution to everything is just stop it. Paul's kind of saying the same thing. Stop being anxious. Just pray. Our problem, y'all, is not that we are not heard by God. It's just simply that we don't pray. 
We get caught up in these anxieties and it's this carousel and we keep going around in this circle and we revisit it in the echo chamber of our own hearts and we entertain it so much. There's something in our flesh that likes to wallow in that. It's just part of our broken heart and that old flesh that's within us that it loves to wallow in the mud of our anxieties. We like that pressure for some reason. And we might say, I don't like it. Well, then stop it. Okay, if you don't like it, then stop it. But there's something within us that gravitates towards stress, that gravitates towards anxiety, that gravitates towards that weight where we're, we're just, it's almost like we feel like we deserve that. But Christ took that which we deserved, put it upon himself, and canceled the record of debt by nailing it to the cross. We are to pray. And here's what I found to be absolutely true, just like you have. When we pray, our anxieties lessen. They do. We know the solution. It's not that there's not a solution. It's just we don't do it. So that's why he says, let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious about nothing. And I I think that that's all paired together because you and I, if I'm going to go be a gentle, humble person in this world, then I've actually got those natural inclinations of, well, people are going to take advantage of that. People are going to see that as weakness. I'm not going to be able to assert myself in this way because I'm supposed to be gentle. Don't be anxious. The Lord will hear your prayers. But anxiety, y'all, it does reign in solitude. That's why whenever you share your anxiety with somebody else, you kind of feel that burden and you're like, oh, they're carrying it with me. But maybe they're not the one to carry it with you. Maybe the Lord is exactly the one who has ever intended to carry it with you. But we turn to ourselves and we turn to others. And Paul says, turn to Christ and your anxiety will lessen. Okay, so D.A. Carson says it this way. The way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. Your job, pray. Your, your family, pray. Your kids, pray. Your marriage, pray. How you're going to get through the week, pray. Busy schedules, pray. Like turn everything over to him in prayer and then those anxieties will be lessened because just as a human father loves to hear the request of his kids, don't get me wrong, I get exhausted by them too, okay? Like you're, they're dad, 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 dad. I'm like, oh, yes, son, yes, daughter. Like I... Our Heavenly Father has inexhaustible patience. And just as I love to hear the requests and the needs of my kids and know that I can meet them, so does He, but in an eternal scope. But we always turn to others or ourselves and never Him. Okay, so just very quickly, practically working this out, where do you start? If you, if you need to quit being anxious and you need to pray, what do you pray about? Everything as much as you can. It doesn't always mean you have to drop to your knees and bow your heads and, and, and clasp your hands. It just means as you're walking to your car today, Lord, I've got an incredibly busy schedule. I need you to get me through this today. Like you just keep throwing that anxiety on him as much as you possibly can. And he says there's three things in this prayer. He says do it by prayer, by supplication, and thanksgiving. And I'm moving quickly because that's the, the language of Paul right here. Paul's just hammering them out. By the way, all my notes always available. Anytime you want to copy the sermon, just text me and I will send you the sermon. Um, so he says three things. You need to pray. This actually speaks to adoration. You need to praise God. Number two, supplication. Tell him what you need. Like tell him what those concerns are. I'm going to repeat these. Don't worry. And Thanksgiving, thank him for hearing you. You want three powerful components for removing anxiety from your life. Praise God because it focuses on him and not yourself. God, you are great and mighty. God, you are holy. I'm not. Like just, it's, you just pray in adoration. What you and I need is less anxiety, more adoration. Supplication. Tell him what your concerns and needs are. Because he hears you and he cares. Peter says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And then number three, thanksgiving. Thank him for hearing you and for providing. Then, I see pins moving, so I'm going to wait just a little bit longer. We're going to move on to to verse 8 here in just a second.
Then Paul says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So this one for me is, is the right focus. Like we need the right fellowship. We need the right perspective. We need the right, um, uh, right what did I put there? I'm sorry. Um, the right perspective uh, right here, and I'm on the right focus. Here's what you and I should be spending our time thinking about. Piece of cake in our world, right? Whatever's true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, worthy of praise. That's what we should be thinking about. Absolutely readily available on Netflix, right? Turn on the radio, there it is. Amazon Music, find that album. I mean, go to Facebook, you're done. I mean, everything there is pure, holy, just, respectable, noble. I mean, come on. Probably means that we need less media. I'm not trying to get on a soapbox. I'm just saying we probably need less media in our lives. But here's what it means to be. I'm going to break down what, the, what it means. Whatever's true, this is all by God's standard. Whatever is morally, ethically, and spiritually true by God's standards. That's what you should be thinking about. If it's morally, ethically, spiritually true by God's standards. And so if it doesn't align with God's standards, quit giving it attention. You know what it will produce in you and me? Anxiety, strife, jealousy. It says whatever's honorable. This means like whatever it is that's dignified and above reproach. That above reproach, I mean, that's a pretty high standard. Means nobody can call it to account. Nobody can say that it's wicked or evil or even have the appearance of evil. So whatever is dignified and above reproach, and get this, and inspires respect from others, think about that. And if it doesn't align, quit giving it attention. It goes on and says, whatever is just. This means whatever is right. Whatever is in accordance with justice. You realize throughout Scripture that we are called to uphold justice. That we are to fight for the oppressed and to speak for those who cannot speak. That we are to, to uphold justice and love justice. That is one of the frequent condemnations on Israel throughout the Old Testament is that they did not hold up justice. That they did not fight for what they were supposed to fight for. There's a time for everything. There's a time for justice. But we should be consuming our minds with what is right and just. And you know what? If it does not align with God's justice, quit giving it attention. Quit thinking about it. Goes on, says, whatever's pure. Here's my, here's my standard. Purity here is defined by God's holiness. And, and J.C. Ryle, I'm going to read a quote here in a second that really kind of pulls this one together. But would I want to be reading this if a holy God were to step into my presence? Would I want to be watching this if there were a holy God sitting in my presence? Would I want to say this if the holy God was in, like if I could see him physically present bodily form? Would I want to say that? Would I want to read that? Would I want to think of that? Would I want to consider that? Because there's that standard of holiness. And Paul says, whatever is pure, think about those things. He says, whatever's lovely, that means whatever brings delight and pleasure and is agreeable to the Lord. Like, think about those things. You know what I'm really, oh, never mind. That's a tangent. I won't. But whatever's lovely, y'all, I do think that missions is lovely. I do. I don't know how to do it. I'm not, I don't know how to go to the nations yet. We got families who love missions and are going to be walking us through it and, and help us with that. I think missions is lovely. We're getting the opportunity where we can go start to serve the homeless uh, every, every month and, and have an opportunity to kind of pour into them. I think that that's lovely to do. So lovely doesn't mean it's pretty. It means that it's delightful, like it's fulfilling and it's agreeable to God. It says whatever's commendable. This means whatever is admirable. That's not a word that we use quite a bit, but something that can be admired or of good repute. And you know what? If it doesn't align with that, then quit giving it attention. Instead, Paul says, instead, if there's anything that's excellent, get this. If there's anything that's excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Do you know what's excellent and worthy of praise? 
Jesus. Yeah. We give such little attention to Jesus. I'm not condemning you. I'm condemning myself. I'm just saying, I get so consumed in everything in this world and everything buys for the attentions. Whenever there's one thing that is excellent, one thing that is pure, and it is Jesus. Or on a broader scale, if we kind of step back, it's God the Father. It's God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and God's Word. Read Psalm 119, and you see all these attributes of things that are commendable, honorable, true, pure, just, lovely, excellent, worthy of praise. And they all align with God's Word, too, if you read Psalm 119. It's just what source of intake are we going to choose? And then you get people like J.C. Ryle, who comes along and says this. This really frustrated me because it's so right and it's good. You need, to, you need this quote. But dadgum, he says, do nothing that you would not like God to see. Say nothing that you would not like God to hear. Write nothing that you would not like God to read. Go no place where you would not like God to find you. Read no book of which you would not like God to say, show it to me. Never spend your time in such a way that you would not like to have God say, what are you doing? I think that's a good commentary on those verses. We can just say, well, it's just the culture we're in. It is. Which is why we should not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We need different media or less media. We need to be reminded that Christ is on the throne. He says one, well, we've covered that. I'm just going to continue on. Paul said, have joy, stop being anxious, pray, focus on the right things. And then this last one is very quick. He says, what you have learned in me, received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. That is the language there is a language that was used to pass on traditions. So one of the reasons that we like to do the Lord's Supper, especially with kids in here, and it was part of the heart of today too, is we want our kids seeing believers take the Lord's Supper so that they say, when do I get to do it? Or why do you do it? And then we pass on that tradition to them. I'm reading Exodus in my own personal study and every Passover meal and every feast. It, God says, so that whenever your son says to you, why do we do this? You can tell him of the Lord's redemption for you. Paul is using the same language and he's saying, hey, what you have learned in me, I'm passing on these traditions to you. What you have learned, what you have received, what you have heard and what you've seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Again, we've, we covered this last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time. This is not arrogance. This is a man who genuinely is striving to follow so hard after God that he's imitating Christ. And he says, as I imitate Christ, you imitate me. And we talked about how that is our call too. But you and I, we need to be reminded that, that Jesus even said in the gospel, he said, this people honors me with their lips and yet their heart is far from me. We can sing as loud as we want. But if the heart is not seated on Christ, it's of no effect. And James says that we shouldn't just be hearers of the word, but doers, or we deceive ourselves. And so Paul says all of these things, he kind of ties it all back together, to, to quit being anxious, to pray the right way, to, um, to, to unite, like all these things he says, as you've seen these things in me, then do them. Because a right thought will cultivate a right heart, and a right heart will generate into right action. And so all of this, he keeps reminding them, the Lord is at hand. He is the reason that we are who we are. And so in the end of this, this passage, here's some just notes I made to myself. They're all really quick, and they all start with strive. Strive for unity with others for the sake of the gospel, and do not contend for yourself. Number two, strive to keep a heavenly fixed joy and do not be governed by the circumstances. Strive to be steadfast in prayer and do not neglect to pray over anything. Strive to dwell on the good and honorable things and do not sin by allowing thoughts of the corruptible. And strive to imitate those godly examples you've been given to be an example yourself and do not forget that this is a ministry to which we have been called. So you take all of those. And those are the five summary examples. And Paul just kind of wrote them to the Philippians and he sent them the letter, right? 
Y'all, I am so thankful that we get to walk life together because Christ has made us his own. I am anxious. I need so much work. That was my prayer driving in this morning is, Lord, I, there, you have a lot of work to do here. Like, but he's done a tremendous work already. Not in my life, but for the lives of all people who call upon his name. We'll get through this together. But that's why Eudea and Sintek need to unite. That's why whenever I'm anxious, you need to remind me to remember my God. That's why whenever media is coming at you left and right, we need to think about those things which are honorable and true. That's why we need to all live lives of godly example so that we can model one another. And then, as Scripture shows us, when one falls, a three-chord strand is not easily broken. We pick up and we keep going. That's what he was calling the Philippians to do. Keep going, persevere, be united, be joyful. Let's pray. Lord, for whatever I cannot preach or communicate, I am so incredibly thankful for your spirit that is within us, that moved men long ago to pen these words, that has sustained these words, and that is within us right now, understanding them at a depth that we cannot know. Lord, thank you for your spirit that wants to be known and wants you to be known and glorified. Lord, minister to us in ways that that I can't and that the elders can't. Lord, be our joy. Be our unifying call. Be our purity. Be our hope and stay. You are our God. We are your people, and you are bringing us home. Amen.